0: A warm welcome to everyone joining us live for this session at Latticework 2021. We had a great day yesterday, and I'm looking forward to another couple of terrific sessions today as well. Uh, this one with Elliot Turner of RGA Investment Advisors and Nick Devlin of Naked Wines. Um, I'm sure many of you, if not most, uh, know Elliot quite well. Uh, he has been just so generous with sharing his uh, insights and wisdom with the MY Global community over the years and uh, is uh, co-host with me on uh, our podcast, This Week in Intelligent Investing. Uh, so much to say about Elliot, but really uh, you know, what stands out to me is just the work that he does on on all of the companies he invests in. He really is a long-term shareholder and uh, tries to get to know those businesses like an operator would. Uh, And that's really what sets him apart. And and that's uh, the reason why he has uh, delivered so many great ideas uh, to the MY global community in his past presentations. Um, Just briefly on RGA, uh, the firm runs a long-term low turnover growth at a reasonable price investment strategy, seeking out global opportunities. Elliot does have a a CFA as well as a law degree and uh, all around just one of the smartest guys I know in the business. Thank you so much Elliot for all your contributions in the past. And now why don't I turn it to Elliot to say a few words about Nick and get us started uh, in this conversation.
1: Hey, John, thank you so much for that incredibly kind introduction. I am fortunate to learn from your wisdom week in, week out as my partner in crime, along with Phil on this week in intelligent investing. And I've learned so much from the community you've put together. And I look forward to another opportunity for an in person event with you. You know, I was really uh, eager to get back to uh, Switzerland this year. Uh, Who knows what may be, but, um, you know, I've missed the personal presence as well. Um, But you know i know that'll happen again and um you know i'm really uh, delighted that you invited me to host this session today and i'm grateful that nick devlin was willing to give us some of his own time as well you know i've gotten to know nick the past uh like year and a half and i've been really enjoying our conversations i've enjoyed nick's perspective on business i've enjoyed getting to know how nick thinks You know, he's really one of those long term, very sharp thinkers who breaks down a problem in a very focused, like neat way. Um, I've invested in many companies and I've looked at many companies where lifetime value analysis is really important. And I think, you know, one of the ways that I've been incredibly uh, excited about Naked Wines is that the disclosures and the level of detail and the candor and quality of presentation is second to none. Uh, it's really a breath of fresh air in, you know, an industry where I think there's a lot of opacity. Uh, you have a really honest, very forward thinking company who will tell you um, exactly how they see it. And I think that's that's really, you know, owes to Nick and the culture uh, at Naked Wines itself. Um, and, you know, I was really lucky to have had the opportunity to meet Nick in person this past year um, and get to know you know, talk beyond business and uh, get to know the person. And I think he's a really just great guy. Um, He's got a little competitive side to him, which, you know, I don't think shows as much on the conference calls, but it's there and it's really interesting to see a good athlete in his own right. Uh, You know, I'm looking forward to cycling with him sometime not too distant future. Um, And, you know, with that, I just want to share a couple of my favorite wines from Naked Wines because this is an incredibly fun company to diligence. And I'd, you know, encourage all of you to at least try. So I always make sure to have the DRG reserve cab uh, at home. I really like the Matt Parrish Trevino and um you know the jesse cats exposed is one of the more interesting i think it's it's like one of the hidden gems in the wine industry something where you could get incredible value incredible bang for your buck for a special occasion so i'd I'd, you know throw those out there and maybe nick share a couple of your favorites and then you know how you first got to naked wines i don't have to twist my arm too much elliot to talk about
2: wine and um yeah so it's a pleasure to come on and yeah, good. In turn, thank you for those very kind words, Elliot. Uh, I've, you know, I've enjoyed our conversations a ton as well, and it's been, been a lot of fun getting to, getting to know each other. Um, and I learned something new actually today, because I, I, I knew about your investing background, but I didn't know you had a law degree. So that, that explains some of the sharp, perceptive questioning <laughs> that, that comes along. Um, yeah, no hesitation to talk about wine. I'm going to pick out a couple of, um, couple of favorites in the range that, you know, say a, a for, for a couple of different reasons, I think um, you know one of the first wines that I just fell in love with, that naked and you know really kind of brought home to me some of the things that we can do that are different, um, was another Matt Parish wine, but it's a it's a wine from El Dorado County, which is in the foothills of California, so you're a little bit inland, um, and it's uh, it's an it's a reserve cab he makes there with a, a crew he calls the Pilot Hill Gang. It's the the, the set of growers out there. And what he set out to do with that wine was answer the question, you know, what happens if you take Napa farming practices and you put them onto a good established Cabernet vineyard in a lesser known region? And you, you get a beautiful wine. And he makes it exactly the same way he makes his reserved Tier of Napa wines for us. Um, same kind of oak profile, same treatment and same kind of vineyard. Um, a beautiful wine, you know, we get to a wine that tastes like a $50 wine that we can sell to our members at 20 bucks. Um, and I come back to that one time and time again. Um, and then, you know, something from a little further afield. I don't know where we've got people joining, you know, who's joining in, in Europe and who's, who's joining in the States. Um, but uh, the wine I was just obsessed with this year, and um, we've got this fantastic, charismatic grower, a guy called step in the Pfalz in Germany. Um, and he's, he's got the real sort of charismatic professor kind of hairstyle, um, spends a lot in the vineyards and crafts these beautiful, fresh, vibrant wines. Um, and uh, he's... A, Brought a rosé of Pinot Noir through to the market this year that was just I was drinking it all summer long um, but I could go on all day long and I know you've got it we've got a lot of topics to get through so I, I'll, I'll move on from wine and, and I'll, I'll give you again the very short version of I guess how how I ended up in the wine industry and especially you know, in this role at Naked it's not an obvious career path um, when you're growing up in the UK um, I, I haven't got anything as impressive as you earlier I've got a history degree and so I needed to go and find a job. Um, and you know, what do you do when you haven't any real training, right? You become a business consultant. And so, so that's what I did. Um, and I worked for a strategy house called OCNC in London for sort of seven and a half, eight years, and um, mainly in their consumer and, and leisure practice. And you know, towards the end of that time, I was working as an associate partner there and had a little bit of good fortune. Um, a partner I worked with very closely. Um, sold a project to Phil Wrigley, who was the chairman at the time of a business called Majestic Wine. Um, anyone who knows the naked story will probably recognise that name. But it's um, for those of you who don't know, it it was and still is the UK's largest retail wine seller. The business with about 250 stores and then an online presence. And the the project was a strategic review. Um, the year was 2014. And the business was struggling because it had started to see, you know, pretty systematic volume decline. And you know, I had the chance to come on board, and I led that project. And it was, you know, fascinating. I won't go too much into it because it's not so relevant here. But you know, for me, it solidified a desire I had to, you know, I'd always been passionate about the wine industry as a consumer. It's fascinating to work in the business. And you ended up this sort of seven-week review. You handed over your pile of recommendations. I thought, God, you know, I'd love a chance to actually do some of this stuff. Um, Anyway, long story short, you know, some of those recommendations said to Phil that, you know, there was a need for, I think, some new management uh, and Majestic, but there's also some need for some more digital capability in the business. Um, he put those two things together and it, it, it corresponded with the founder of Naked Wines, Rowan Gormley, being at a time where he was looking to seek additional funding for the business. Uh, and that was really effectively the genesis of, of the tie-up between those two companies. And um, I, that's how I got to meet Rowan. During the course of him closing his due diligence out, I had a chance to meet with him and James Crawford who's still in the business today. And I thought, you know, these are some people who've got a real vision for doing something different in the wine industry. And not just disrupting the way wine is sold, although that's part of it, but also they've got a passion and a vision for how we can solve some of the challenges and issues faced by producers in the industry. And, you know, to me, that was what really resonated, you know, that this was a business that was thinking about how it could solve problems, both for consumers and for producers and doing something different. And, you know, I was, I was hooked pretty quickly. Um, I actually, as a follow-up after the deal closed, I, I met Rowan for coffee. Uh, we had a half-hour chat and shook hands on a deal.
1: And, and that's, that's how I started working at Naked Wines. Yeah. And so, you know, Rowan built a very interesting culture. He's an interesting character. He built a mission driven culture with a real passion for testing and learning, very data oriented. Maybe talk a little bit about that culture and, you know, the fact that you've inherited this culture and you've had the opportunity to kind of steer it a little bit in your to leave your own imprint while maintaining the essence of it. Uh, now that Naked Wines has been given its own wings from Majestic, right? So it's the, kind of the reversal of, of, of that merger from the past. It, it, indeed, right? So I, I think from my point of view, the first thing um, to say
2: is that, you know, that, the great culture that we have in the business, I think all stems from the fact we have this authentic, clear, guiding mission. And, you know, that's why, you know, the 11, you know, strong team who kind of moved with Rowan to found the business, God, you know, 13 and a half years ago, There's still a decent number of those people working in the business today. You know, they're still as passionate about what we do as they were, you know, back then when it was, you know, a small group of people trying to prove to the world that this crazy idea could work. And I think it comes from the fact that what most people get out of bed in the morning for is thinking about how we can change how the industry works and how we can solve real problems on behalf of our producers, our winemakers. And I think when you do that and you think, okay, my job is to work out how do I create the conditions for a talented independent producer to be able to build, you know, a viable, thriving, growing their own and produce world-class wine, and connect it, connect them directly to people who love drinking it, and ultimately, you know, get out of the way, you know, break down all of these barriers that have been set up, you know, most notably in the US, you know, through the infrastructure of the three-tier system. Um, you know, that's something that energizes people, and I think that's the root of why the culture is so strong because there's everyone. We know we're here for the same reason and the same purpose. And even when times are tough or things are hard, that's something you can latch back onto. And it's incredibly easy to reconnect to, you know, anytime, you know, you're having a tough day, a conversation with one of our winemakers about the impact the business has had, or just even honestly opening a bottle of wine and and, and you're there. So I think that's the root of the great culture. And I I heard Ron talk about this once and he said, you know, I never really thought about culture at all. I, I, I just thought about building a group of people who are passionate about a shared goal. And a lot of what followed followed really naturally. Um, so I think that's the first thing. I, I think there are those some hallmarks and some elements, you know, whether it was by design or by you know, force of personality and nature that I think Rowan bequeathed to the business that, that really, you know, I found very attractive when I joined and have been keen to preserve. Uh, you know, one of them is that we very much, you know, it's a pretty flat culture, and we really strongly believe that ultimately you want to have a kind of marketplace of ideas. know there's no monopoly of great ideas it doesn't follow the org chart or follow seniority Um, but what you do need to be pretty rigorous about is having a culture where you've got an ability and and just you know everyone recognizes that the right way to choose between a ton of ideas is let's work out how do you put them to test you know how do you create a kind of agile test and learn culture and build an organization where there's depth of kind of literacy in data And people are able to have an engaged debate and discussion about, you know, results and findings and, you know, letting the best ideas win and protecting them. And I think that's something that, you know, in in lots of different elements of Naked has been a hallmark of how we've been able to punch a little bit above our weight and, and, you know, why we've been able to continuously kind of grow the business. So that's something that I loved when I joined. It was different, to be honest, from the environment I'd found, you know, a lot of my consulting career was in FTSE 100 um, environments. And I thought that was something that really stood out at And I was like, I feel really at home here. And I think that's something that, you know, a lot of us in the business are particularly passionate about. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been, you know, it ultimately it's just a group of people that are really fun to come to work with every day because we've got the same, the same goal in mind.
1: And yeah, you know, one of the big catalysts since you've uh, taken over or one of the big changes is that you've obviously started as a UK business And the U.S. has emerged as one of the largest uh, growth opportunities and there's some distinct differences in the market and, you know, there are opportunities for the culture to capture and create even more value. So maybe talk about the differences between the two countries and what that means for your business strategy and your opportunities.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, obviously, for those of
1: you who don't know, you
2: know, whilst I'm a Brit, um, I actually spent most of my naked career working in the US and I I live in Napa, California these days. So I I moved out, you know, fast forwarding my personal story, I moved out in 2017 and and ran our US division from 2017 to the end of 2020 when when Rowan retired and I took over as Group Chief Executive. So I think it is natural to kind of reflect on on what's different, maybe starting on what's kind of similar. Like the the core challenge in our business units in Australia, the UK and the US is pretty similar. Uh, It's very, very hard in the wine industry for a talented independent producer who's making great quality wine to turn that skill into a viable business that they can invest behind and grow and to share that product um, to consumers. The reasons, though, you know, are slightly different. If you look in the UK and in Australia, it's really around the extreme consolidation of buying power at the retailer end, whether it's Coles and, Wool- and Woolies in Australia, in the UK, you know, the big four supermarkets, they have extreme power and tend towards, you know, a commoditization of the wine category. Um, in Australia, a real focus on kind of private label um, strategy. Yeah, um, uh, You know, so big, you know, Big production wineries big vats of wine create and slap a label on it in the uk it's just extreme aggressive negotiation in the us i think that reaches its zenith right you have you know that same challenge 70 percent of wine sold to american consumers comes from the top five producers but you add a second one which is this gatekeeper role that the big distributors play with wine being sold through a regulated three-tier system and those big distributors have no commercial incentive and no interest in nourishing and supporting new producers getting access to market. Um, ultimately, you know, they, they don't want to know, they don't want to distribute new products to help you grow a brand. So you have the situation where it's incredibly hard for anyone to scale anything new. I, I think the, you know, that's a common challenge and I think that's why you know, our businesses have got a lot alike. But one of the things that you know, is different if you think about the US opportunity, is the consequence for consumers of that heavily regulated market environment. And, you know, we've talked about this earlier, but Americans pay more, um, you know, on average for a bottle of wine than people in pretty much any other country on earth. And, you know, I'd love to be able to say that it's because all of the wine is better than anything that's being drunk anywhere else. But that, sadly, that's not true. Instead, it's a function that, you know, most wine sold in the three tier system. You know, when you buy that bottle of wine at a liquor store, you're effectively the third buyer. You know, a winery's made it. They've often spent a lot of money marketing it. A distributor's extracted a markup along the way, and then the retailer sells it to you again. And and that meant when we moved to America, we found this market which was extraordinarily ripe for what we offer. A combination of using our capital and finance, um, drawn from our pool of nearly a million members, to support independent producers and help them produce great wine at lower but then our direct-to-consumer model to strip out, you know, that, that intermediary role, uh, reduce the number of margins being taken out and then offer superior value for the consumer. So I think, you know, that is ultimately the reason why, you know, the proposition probably is the most differentiated, um, you know, in, in the U.S. market and in you know, the amount of excess value we have to share and we can talk about how we share it with the consumer um, is at its greatest there. Um, I think the second thing that's interesting is, you know, a new market, you do have a chance almost to take a little bit of a fresh start, or you, you just reconsider and reappraise how you think about yourselves. And I think that's one of the areas in which we have evolved the culture a little. Um, you know, in the UK, when we first started out, you know, it was a team of 11 people who'd left, you know, another wine business, um, a company called Virgin Wines, and were out to prove that, you know, they, they could do this better. And it was a real backs against the wall. Um, the business was founded in 2008 during, you know, massive downturn. Everyone said it's a terrible time to start a business. So it came with this underdog mentality of we're going to prove you wrong. You know, we're going to show we can do this. I think over time, one of the things that I've looked to build is, you know, we're moving from being an underdog with the largest direct-to-consumer wine business on earth. And I think it's important that as you start to be, you know, a leader in a category, we think about. In general, you know, how can we act and behave to grow the category, grow consumer understanding, and focus more on that positive differentiation versus, you know, sometimes you have that scrappy underdog spirit and you know you're up for a fight with everyone. So that that probably is one of the things that's evolved a little bit over the years.
1: Yeah, no, and that's uh, very interesting. Like one of the forces that one, one of the misperceptions or challenges I encounter with some investors, and I think you alluded to it a little bit though. Is you combine some of the best traits of like marketplace and subscription businesses, though people are not sure whether to think of you as a marketplace or as a wine club or as a subscription. So maybe talk a little bit about how like the consumer relationship works and what it's like. Because one of the things I found most interesting is like if you go on a Zoom with Matt Parrish talking to some of his favorite uh, so some customers who view him as their favorite winemaker, it's like really a community. It's something more than just a wine club than just a subscription and the way the customer pays you is different than the way someone would for a club, for example, and Mm -hmm. the amount of reviews and engagement you get. So maybe talk about that element and about building like what the consumer relationship is like and building a community as well.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, to start with what's in common or maybe some of the marketplace type elements of the model, I think they really stem from the origin of Naked, right? The fact that we were focused on solving problems for both consumer and winemaker, and we had this epiphany that said if you bring consumer and winemaker together, they can help each other solve those problems. So practically, the way you know Naked membership works are uh, nearly a million members. You know they're paying a monthly deposit into their account. We call it an angel account. We call our, our members angels that gives us a pool of capital. It's, I think, you know, somewhere in the region of $300 million a year being paid in now. And that gives us an ability to go and invest and support different winemakers to produce wine. And so the, the consumers are solving the winemakers problem of access to capital. Um, we're giving a guaranteed commitment on that wine to winemakers, and that's solving a few problems for them. Um, the guarantee and the volume are improving their production efficiency. It's reducing their cost per bottle to produce. So it's Stopping them being subscale producers making wine for too much money per bottle, and then the guarantee of having an audience of members to sell back to is stopping them having to spend a lot of excess money on marketing, you know, sales teams, distribution teams, um, which is you know again reducing their cost as well, and it means they've got access to distribution. You know, that challenge I talked about earlier, where distributors normally don't want to help support a new brand or help it gain traction in the market, so you you, you've, you solve two problems for for winemakers by pairing them up with with consumers. And then, you know, on the consumer side, I think there are a couple of really common problems in the wine industry. Um, Everyone's been in that situation where you go into a bottle shop or a supermarket and you're faced with a wall of liquor. uh, And how do you tell what to buy? And, you know, all you really know is, you know, a label or something like that. And we believe that actually, you know, product is much more enjoyable when you've got a connection to the person who made it. We talk about the emotional differentiation in the business and we want to give you that opportunity to connect directly, whether that's messaging that parish on his wall and giving him feedback and having a live conversation with him about the product you drank, or joining him for a tasting call or joining one of our in-person events that we run uh, in more normal times. Uh, then all of that deepens the relationship and it gives you access to a little bit of that thing we've probably all experienced. Because maybe we have visited a winery, we've gone somewhere in person and we've tried something and you bring it home. And every time you taste it, it reminds you a little bit of that. You know, we found a model that at scale can give consumers that feeling. And I think that really helps build that sense of loyalty. Now, obviously for us, you know, all of this is it's not just philanthropic. It's intentional because when consumers become intensely loyal to these winemakers, their products only available, it's available exclusively at Naked. You've got an ecosystem which is engineered and designed to create these really strong bonds between consumer and winemaker, but that also creates a business which has got a very high retention, you know, a really sticky kind of loyal business. So I think that's you know one of the ways in which we think about that. I think though it's also interesting to kind of contrast, you say, you know, you know, what are the differences from you know pure marketplace? And if you look at a business like Vivino. You know, which is you know the archetype of taking that to an extreme, right? You know, a pure marketplace in the wine space, I think, still ends up being very confusing. You know, you're not actually solving the problem of extreme choice for consumers. And I I see as much more of the role. If you think about a fashion business, right? You know, the most successful fashion businesses don't tell you here's ten thousand pairs of jeans. They've got a distinctive edit, and they're going to bring you a style and an identity. And the same way for Naked, you know, our role is to scour the world and. We're going to bring you two or three producers who are going to epitomize the best of the russian river as opposed to giving you 150 to choose from and you know expect you to do the hard work Um, i think there's also a difference when it comes to the economics and again you know vivino is acting as a marketplace selling on behalf of retailers in the us so it's actually trying to take a fourth margin out of what's already an incredibly kind of you know intense set of margin balls before the customer gets the product Um, because we don't do that because we you know, take on the production role, we take on that funding risk and support winemakers to produce and guarantee, you know, the outlet. Um, you know, we're not doing that at all. And we get to this environment where you get great result for consumer and really attractive price, better wine for your money. But we've also got an attractive margin business. And you, you can look at the disclosure, right? You know, group wide, um, we're running the business at just, just under 30% contribution margin on sales to our members actually higher than that in you know, contribution margins in the mid to high 30s in, in our US division, our fastest growing division. So you get some of the economics, which look much more like traditional retail, um, but at very good retention rates. So I, I think that's how you think about some of the different trade-offs. And you know, we feel like certainly for the wine category, we've arrived at a really nice combination of some of the best elements of both there.
1: Yeah. And, you know, you reference no longer being this underdog and with COVID, you've taken a level up in scale. And very early on, you recognized, you know, this was potentially transformational for your business Did the five million dollar COVID relief fund for winemakers. And I, it from my seat, it really looks like you have a different per, winemakers have a different perspective of naked wines. Right. Um, so in the beginning, you know, maybe you had to recruit winemakers and now people recognize you and want to come there. So maybe talk about how that's changed the business, uh, just having this new scale and how being able to make the winemakers life a little easier. You know, you talked about that a little bit, but maybe talk more about, um, why, why winemakers find this appealing, like why they want to be there. Well, the truth is, Elliot,
2: that, you know, 13 years ago, Rowan had this amazing idea about how we could solve problems for winemakers and consumers. Um, Convincing consumers was relatively easy from day one. um, But winemakers were a little harder to convince. And the wine industry, um, I joke, it's, you know, it's not the classic oldest profession, but it's right up there, right? People have been putting, you know, clay amphora in the ground and fermenting grapes for a hell of a long time. But it's not always a profession that, you know, adapts or moves that quickly. And what we found in our early days was you did, you had to sell, you know, really for a long period of time and court and build relationships to convince a producer to come on board. And people were concerned about doing something that was a little different. People were wondering how other producers they respected would think about them selling their wine in a different way. Or what would it be like being involved, you know, creating a brand purely online. I think over time, you know, we've, we've broken down a lot of that, just, you know, the best way you can, you know, a track record of consistently doing what you say you're going to do, um, building relationships one at a time. And often a lot of the extra winemakers who've joined us have been recommended by someone else who says, you know, what, this is amazing. Actually, I funded and supported my project. I got to make what I wanted. I'm building my own brand and by the way, I'm actually making more money than I ever have before. And, you know, All of a sudden, you know, you start to get more people coming to you. But I think you're absolutely right to identify a step change over the course of the last two years. And it comes down to, I think, one thing that's purely numbers uh, and one thing that's more sentiment. Uh, the thing that's pure numbers, you know, the business is double the scale it was 24 months ago. And that means in terms of working with new winemakers, the way we think about it, there's a certain amount of commitment we're willing to make to a new producer. And we think about that in terms of purchasing risk. And for the same level of risk with a new producer, I can now buy twice as much wine as I could two years ago and about four times as much wine as I could five years ago, because my risk to me mathematically, it's the percentage of your total buy that you're giving to a new unknown producer. So that means from the get go, commercially we're able to put together a very compelling offer for new winemakers. And that's really stepped up. Um, but I think the you know the emotional side is that there's been a real re-evaluation for producers um, around what the future is going to look like. And the last 18 months have told people I've got to have a direct consumer strategy, um, but I can't be reliant on physical premises to be all of my D2C strategy. Um, I know I need to now have an online component. And it's also told people, you know, they've tried to do some of this themselves and they worked out it's not hard, it's not easy. Sorry, it's very hard. And that means people are much more receptive, I think, to the idea of doing something differently. And especially when it's with a business like Naked, I think, you know, you talked about our COVID relief fund. We worked with 45 different winemakers from outside of our stable of producers um, and gave them help when they really needed it. And, you know, a lot of those, that's how we first met Jesse. And, you know, that, that led to us, you know, create, co-creating the Exposed brand with Jesse Katz. And I think that's testament to the type of producer that's now interested in working with Naked. Um, I don't know if you saw, he recently set the world record. He sold a a bottle of wine, The Calling. um, It's a project he's created exclusively for auction and uh, auctioned off for a million dollars. So, you know, he's, he's, he's made the most expensive bottle of wine on earth. And he's also making wine exclusively for angels, which we're pretty proud of.
1: Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point insofar as the typical perception had been, you know, come to Naked to get cheap quality. But now it's a platform where you have like affordable luxury, right? So you've made something that's like a product with a lot of pretension to be accessible to a much larger customer base. So maybe talk about the evolution of the perception, both from the customer and the winemaker side and what that means in terms of your strategy as a business.
2: Well, the first thing is, I think that there's something real that underpins that, right? In, in all parts of our business, we're committed to a real continuous improvement culture. And that fits, you know, we talk about it a lot externally about, you know, our marketing approach, but that sits also as well when we think about the quality of wine we're producing and the range and how we've evolved that. I think one of the things that gives me the most pride is if I think back of the range we had when I first got involved with the business five and a half years ago and the range we've got today, I think mean, we've made massive steps forward. And that's because we've been working with good people. We've given them the funding and the support. We've extended the length of contracts we've entered into to, you know, let people carry on dialing up and up the quality. And I, I think that's the first thing that's there. You know, the real underpinning of the quality of wine we've made has never been stronger. And we're passionate about data, so we, we spend a lot of time validating that. Um, you know, we we look at things like our wines for Vino ratings against the market, and you can see that quality premium. Um, but as you say, I think we haven't always had that be very well understood. And one of the things we've focused a lot on in the course of the last year, and you know, not in any way pretending that this is a finished article, we're still working on it, but is you know better communicating that quality to, to customers. And I think you describe it beautifully. Um, helping people understand that Naked Wines isn't a business that gives you access to cheap wine. Um, and ultimately, there's a world-class business that does cheap wine in the US. It's called Earth's Gallo. It's a fantastic business. I'm looking at it very well run and produces cheap wine very effectively. So we don't want to be in that game. Um, but what we are able to do is give you access to the type of quality wine that you see from small wineries in regions like the Barossa in Australia or Napa or, you know, anywhere else you care to name. But, and we can do that. We can give you access to that quality at a much less. And we do that because the way we work with producers lets them produce the same wine at lower cost And the way we bring that to market strips out frictional cost. And those two things mean that we can sustainably um, and with good economics for ourselves, give you access to better prices. Uh, I think, I think maybe a little bit of shaking off the underdog spirit is helping us communicate that as well. You know, lets us be a little more comfortable doing things like entering traditional wine awards. And, you know, we enter our wines into things like the Decanto World wine awards and that they win tons of medals. It's, you know, it's not hard, but I think culturally for us, there was a little bit of, Well, you know that's traditional wine industry we won't do that i think we've got to a point where we're comfortable saying we want to showcase and we want to provide for our producers a platform to show the great work they're doing and help consumers understand that what you're getting here is a better way to buy great quality wine as opposed to as you say a a solution for something you know that's just cheap i I think the i think the other thing that's interesting there is you know a a question i often get asked and maybe a misperception that sometimes i sat in the investment community around you know where what do we need to do in terms of kind of price point and you know why why are we talking about premiumization or, or this kind of idea of quality perception and it's to my mind it's all about the opportunity we have to drive you know awareness and consideration um if we can if we can get more people to understand that we've got a unique model that lets you produce quality for less that's much more valuable than just a discount um you know dollar shave club became popular because they convince people that it didn't cost a lot to make a great quality razor, um, which is a much more compelling argument than giving someone a cheap razor, right? No one wants to, you know, hack their face off with a cheap blade. And, you know, that's why we're focused on this. You know, the flip side of that is the beauty of our business, right? We designed it from day one. Our margins selling wine for $10, $12, $13 are brilliant. So, you know, we don't have any requirement to increase our average price per bottle for economic sake. But we think there's a great opportunity if we can better convince people of the quality of wine that we're able to produce.
1: Yeah, you often share in your investor communications this great slide that shows the customer value prop uh, using Vivino as the kind of arbiter of quality at, you know, the $10 to $15 range and upwards where you have like much more consumer surplus created at the higher levels of price. And one of the things that I've been reflecting on that I find interesting is you have like two distinct opportunities uh, in so far as price is concerned. One is uh, taking your customers on a journey and introducing them to your wines and walking them up price points uh, just in so far as they get more interested in the wine and engage in the community. And the other is onboarding from the start new customers at higher price points. So there are two like vectors that you could explore there. And then you know, there's still the question of you do earn a higher con. Your costs to ship a case of wine are fixed, so when you do sell at higher price points, you have more contribution. So you get to think about how to allocate that surplus between customers. So maybe you know, there's a lot in there, but t- I think it comes together in something cohesive. So maybe maybe discuss that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So you're right, Elliot, and I think one thing we already know
2: and we've proven to ourselves, which is. There is plenty of demand to explore and try more premium products um, amongst our existing customer base. Just taking the US as an example, over, over half our members have spent more than $20 a bottle um, on something in the course of the last year, um, which is a big increase from where it would have been a few years ago. And wines like uh, Jesse Katz's debut wine, I think we sold a quarter of a million dollars on launch day. Um, Daniel Barron, who's an amazing character and a great guy. Um, He was the head winemaker for over a decade at Silver Oak in the Napa Valley. Um, He also made wine at Dominus, um, you know, one of the few um, places in Napa that's had multiple 100-point Parker scores. So, you know, extreme pedigree. Uh, We sold, I think, $600,000 of his launch project at Brankle Francophone um, this year. So, you know, you can see that there's appetite, you know, to stretch up into – know when we produce you know world-class wine maker iconic region selling wines for 30 40 50 dollars a bottle there's demand so the first opportunity i think is is proven and you know we're taking advantage of i think the second opportunity you know is 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 absolutely there and it probably means that you know of our 20 billion dollar tam in the us you know we know about 3 billion of which sits at people buying wine at over 30 dollars a bottle and i think we can disproportionately we can grow that section faster now that we're building out this repertoire and range of more premium product, and the you know, more effective we are of conveying that understanding. Um, I think the most interesting part of the question earlier was saying, you know, yeah, philosophically, how do we think about this question of you know, a potentially greater surplus? Um, because it's true, you know, the more and more expensive wine gets, the more and more of what you're paying is going on stuff that isn't grapes and oak and winemaker talent. It's going on either the marketing budget for you know, a big producer in Napa, or just the mathematical effect of a moderately high cost price being ratcheted up through three sets of margin um, and presented to you by the three-tier system. I think the way, the way we're thinking about this is, you know, we've got no, I'm not interested in maximizing the contribution margin of naked wines for, for the sake of having a high margin. Um, really what we want is that ultimately that, that margin should be, in my mind, you know, the lowest it can be, to enable us to produce you know, high lifetime value, sufficiently valuable customers that we can invest aggressively in growing the business and continue delivering you know, great returns, you know, really strong IRR on the cohorts we acquire. And as we as the business gets stronger and things improve, whether that's we scale the business and reduce our variable costs, or we scale the business and reduce our producers costs, um, our default instinct is to share that back with members. Uh, And the same is true of of pricing. So the reality is we have pretty moderate accretion of contribution margin as we go into more luxury product. Um, And we, you know, we see instead the greatest opportunity of getting customers drinking things of a quality level they wouldn't be able to try elsewhere and using that to really drive loyalty. And that's that's always our, you know, our our default bias. And if you think about a subscription business, there are ultimately two paths to a long-term high EBIT margin. You know, one path, you can say, okay, well, if I, if I make my, my contribution margin higher and higher and higher, then, you know, you can see how that's driving bottom line margin at maturity. Um, but the other approach is to say, well, if I, if I hold a contribution margin and I can be reinvesting and giving more value back to consumers, I can drive higher and higher retention rates. And that reduces my cost to replenish. I have fewer customers leaving. It, it costs me less at maturity to replace them. Uh, and you also get to a business that sees higher and higher long-term profitability, And philosophically, I think the second type of business is much, much harder to compete with uh, than the first one.
1: Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned, Tam, I really wanted to ask this because uh, last year at this time, I presented Naked Wines in uh, Manual of Ideas, Best Ideas uh, conference. And I've heard a lot of feedback from investors. And one of the things that some people tell me is I really like the business. I get the value prop. I think everything makes sense. But I'm just not sure this could get really big. Meanwhile, I think you have a pretty like conservative assessment of what your TAM is. So talk about your market opportunity, how big you think TAM is, and how big you think you could get within that addressable market. I was gonna say it's, it's interesting. I've you know seen other people in the category, you know, claim
2: that their TAM is, you know, three or four times the size that we claim on ours. So I, I agree with you. I think we. You know, look, we don't like to kind of overpromise promise um, things. So the way we think about our TAM is, you know, within, within the zone of wine that's consumed at home in our addressable markets, uh, we extract everything below the minimum price we're interested in selling at because we're not in the cheap wine business. Um, we also extract anything that's sold to people who aren't regular multiple times a month wine consumers because we don't think they're good subscription buyers. And so, you know, taking the US example, you know, we cut out half of the 40 billion um wine market that's sold for at home consumption to get to our $20 billion town. And you know, we we sell we sell spirits in, in the UK and Australia, but we don't put any of the spirits market into our addressable market. Uh, and I think, you know, midterm that could definitely be addressable. So I'm with you. I think it's quite conservative. Um, I think there are maybe a couple of things that you know, people might misperceive and kind of saying, okay, you know, is this business somehow niche? So even though there's a $25 billion town, you know, can you build a multi-billion dollar revenue business here? I think one thing is, you know, some people have just characterized the online wine DTC market as a little bit of this kind of digital niche early adopter market. Um, and therefore, you know, is it really going to scale or generalize to the mainstream of wine consumption? And I, I think that's where ultimately we always designed a business you know by intent to say how do we make how do we enable the best wine producers to make the best wines at the price points that most people want to pay you know 10 to 30 bucks a bottle and we've gotten a real advantage there that's rooted in better wine for your money and that's very different from say a business like wink which is about you know a d2c mark a classic d2c marketing story you know how can i produce a kind of beautiful website a kind of you know a, you know, a little bit of digital marketing and an app and get a bunch of people to engage with it and play around with it. So I think, you know, that focus on how do you create a business model that enables you to produce a a differentiated product, I think is very different. And it, it means actually that our sweet spot of consumer that we tend to do best with, you know, looks very like, you know, the core, the heart of the American wine drinking market. You know, they're people who've got kids at home or post kids at home, regular wine drinkers, love wine, but don't feel super confident about it. It's a real every man portrait and every woman portrait of, of the American wine drinker. And I think so I think to me that says, actually, you know, the types of custom we do best with, the segments of the market that have moved online actually a little bit later, and still a lot of these consumers who would be perfect for naked, you know, are still, you know, buying wine in a very traditional way. So I, I think there's I think there's absolutely the potential for this to be a 10% share business within that town. You know, what does that get you to? you know, a couple of billion. I I think that's the kind of target, you know, we certainly ambition we have internally for for this business because we don't see it as a niche opportunity. And I think you can point to already some early signs if you look at either the fact we've got a higher level of market penetration in the UK where we've been trading longer, or you look at some states in the US um, where regulation has opened them up more recently. So, you know, it's been a bit of a, you know, ground zero start. Um, somewhere like Pennsylvania, where you know we we again see market share in double digits to to show that we've got an ability to do that. So, yeah, I, I certainly see it as an opportunity to build something of real scale. Um, the one thing though you know I, I think we're always careful about is I don't want to promise exactly when, right? because at any point you promise that you can deliver a certain revenue number in a certain time horizon. I think that goes against something else that we've really always believed in, which is you know you've got to have the discipline and willingness to say, we're going to grow the business at the right rate. That means we're confident that every time we invest money and we acquire customers, we're generating real value for shareholders. You know, maybe that's why we're, you know, growth that, you know, growth at a reasonable price. And, you know, that's, uh, that's why, that's why we've always got on well, Elliot.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Right. Well, you know, we've got some great questions rolling into the Q and a maybe uh, John, do you have a couple of those queued up to go? Uh, I got more questions to ask. So it could give you a, a little leader um, with another one, if not.
0: You know, Elliot, if you want to roll with the audience questions as well, um, feel free. Um, to me, one that just one that kind of uh, stood out was um, competition. If you could talk a bit about that a little bit more, uh, including from Virgin Wines and, and other players and kind of how do you see the market longer term in terms of you know, how many companies can be really successful at scale at the same time?
2: Yeah, happy, happy to talk about that competitive piece. And I I think if you want to think about in particular, I think the, you know, we'll start with the US market because it's obviously our biggest growth opportunity and it's our largest division these days. Um, It's still a pretty nascent, you know, market in terms of the movement for demand online. I think our best estimate is that, you know, as of today, kind of even post a big increase with COVID, still only around 7% spend in the wine category in the US is online, Um, which given it's a category that actually, you know, it's easier for you to, you know, gain information, review product, understand what to buy online. It's a big, bulky, heavy category, you know, really actually very suitable for delivery. and, And lots of people live in areas that aren't well served by specialist wine retail um, you know, I think actually it's massively underpenetrated. You know, we should, that, that number are, You can know, take an end of a decade view. I don't know whether you want to pick 20%, 30%, but I think, you know, we'd all be confident that's going to only head in one direction. So I think with that in mind, I think there are going to be multiple different types of winners emerge and winning models emerge online. And you, you can maybe align some of the different participants against that. So you see innovation and money going to businesses, you know, Uber looking at Drizzly and things like that. And there's definitely one strand here, which is how do you take the convenience mission? I want a bottle of wine for tonight online. Now, you know, that's not our market. So we don't really see those businesses as competitors. But that is, you know, really moving your kind of local 7-Eleven spend and you know, giving an alternative to that. I think at the other end of the market, you've got some businesses that are looking to serve, you know, a very sophisticated wine consumer that's got a very fixed idea about what they want to buy. And I think wine.com and Vivino are interesting companies that are competing for a customer that feels like they've got a very high level of confidence and wine knowledge. And they're ultimately looking to play the kind of long assortment game, you know, 20,000 SKU range, any wine you've ever wanted, we can give that wine to you. Um, What's interesting about those businesses is that their economics, you know, mean they work on a pretty small portion of the total, you know, TAM you've got in the U.S., because if you think about wine.com, it's a 30% gross margin retail model with all the same distribution and fulfillment costs we've got. If you think about Vivino, it's actually operating as a fourth margin at the end of the three-tier system. So again, works well on a, a trophy bottle of wine that there's excess stock on that you can discount by 50%, but it's still 50 bucks. There's enough absolute contribution for everyone to get paid. But really struggles when it comes to monetizing demand from you know, the everyday American wine consumer. And I think that's why, you know, we still see, you know our biggest competition and, you know, if I'm challenging our teams to do a benchmark tasting, the things I'm most interested about, how are the wines stacking up against, you know, Costco, Trader Joe's, how are we doing against the kind of chain liquor stores and, you know, the wines ranges out of grocery because the reality is, you know, over half the customers that move online to Naked and become great members, you know, we're the first time they've been buying their wine online. So I maybe that gives you a little bit of an overview of kind of the, the US scene in particular. Um, I want to talk about Virgin Wines because you know, everyone always asks about Virgin Wines. So, you know, and I think um, compared to some of the people who been in the business longer, I can be a little more dispassionate. Um, it's you know, it's a solid, tidally run business in one of our divisions. Um, yeah, it's you know under a fifth of the total size uh, in terms of custom base and revenue that Naked is. Uh, it's been run really nicely run by by its management team and they've had a kind of successful crystallization of some value and, and gone into the public market. Um, you know, it's had, and it's not been run for growth, right? If you look at that business over a course of a 10-year run um, pre-COVID, I think it netted about 2% compound growth. Um, so, you know, roughly offsetting inflation, probably below inflation in terms of wine bottle prices. So probably an ex-volume growth business. And You know, ultimately, I think, you know, that reflects the fact that, you know, it hasn't got as compelling a customer proposition. Um, So, you know, you don't, you know, don't see it as a business that's got the same level of ambition to kind of change the way, um, certainly can change things for consumers. I think it's also very different in that it doesn't have the same desire or kind of willingness to build long-term relationships with producers, um, you can go and have a look at the the Virgin Wines IPO deck, and I think there's there's a magic slide in there that you know, with it with with it, you know, apologies to you know, our good friends across the other side of Norwich, um, essentially says that you know the magic recipe for a for a great bottle of wine is one quarter great wine and three quarters cheap wine, which makes great high margin wine, um, and I think that just says everything philosophically that's different about the businesses. You know, ultimately we believe in building long-term partnership with world-class winemakers. And we think that's how you build brands that have got real consumer appeal and authenticity behind them. And I think, I think that's a little different.
1: Great. And I see a question that Nick, you'll recognize as effectively after my heart here, (laughs) which is, you know, reflective of a lot of the conversations we've had. Um, but I'll also preface it with, um, you know, two of the foremost challenges and opportunities that I've seen for the business and doing some surveys and, you know, just uh, seeing what's happened over the last couple of years is that not many people know that you could buy wine online and not many people know that naked wines ex- exist, right? The unaided awareness isn't very strong. So this question is, uh, you know, Nick has spoken recently about launching more brand advertising for naked wines. How do you aim to be eye-catching and different in this marketing approach?
2: Yeah, look, I think that's a great question. And um, we absolutely, you know, see the opportunity to tell our story uh, as a big, as a big part of the plan over the course of the coming years. You know, like most D2C companies, you know, we come from this heritage and this kind of place of comfort. You grow to a certain scale um, with you know, an almost exclusive performance marketing mix, whole sets of channels where you kind of know and can attribute the value all the way through. You understand the metrics, you know, you set a target rate of return. And and if you're good operators, you hit that consistently and you scale the business. And that's what we've done. I think we've got a great heritage there. But I do think we've got an opportunity, a breakout opportunity um, to start to, as I said, tell more of the story and, and, and help build the category and change consumer perception. And I think to do that, you know, we need to, one, you know, tell the world our story, help people understand How and why we're different, you know, that we're not just another online wine club or online wine business, but we have uh, a model which changes um, the rules of the game. It changes the core economics for winemakers, and therefore does create this consumer surplus that we can share back. Um, But then, too, you know, we need to find a way to bring it to life um, and make it memorable. Um, I think that's you know the both the biggest excitement and you know the thing that frankly is the most scary about moving into a brand advertising world right you know the the difference in terms of impact between doing it well and doing it mediocally is enormous um i think there are some things we know from our early creative testing in australia though that really give us some good guardrails and in in working with our creative partners we've been clear on and one of them is you know successful we've got to make sure we we never forget that ultimately we're not really the hero of our business um, the producers we work with are, are the talent here. You know, they're the stars. And certainly in Australia, where we have had some good early success in terms of changing perception of the business and building greater awareness, both aided and unaided, and better comprehension. Um, we've done that through content that's not been excessively high production, um, but has, you know, had an unrelenting focus on our winemakers and has put them front and centre. So I think that's one of the things that, you know, that I think we know. Um, and one of the things that you can look out for. Now, I think the second thing is, you know, even as you move into you know, a brand challenge, it's important that you don't forget about the things that you're really good at as a business. And one of the things we do pride ourselves on is our test and learn culture. And I think the way in which we're trying to build our brand advertising strategy kind of reflects that. So sure, it's not the same as being able to run 20 Facebook ad sets and see the results the next day, but you can still break a problem down. And you know, for us, we broke it down into saying step one, you know, can we spend money um, you know, through brand advertising and a set of different channels and change people's minds at a cost-effective basis? And that's where we've got to so far in Australia. You know, We have quarterly measurements of an extensive brand tracker. We've been able to see that regions we spent money above the line in particular on TV. We have changed perceptions. We understand what it cost us to do that. We can see that the perceptions have moved more than they have in regions we haven't advertised. So we understand that it's actually due to the, the action we've taken. And, you know, we can move on to a step two, which talks about, OK, you know, how do we work out the right amount of impact and impression to see? And how does that overall spend feed through into the performance effectiveness of other channels we have? So I think we can still break down a problem and we can still apply our strengths to it. Um, and, you know, that's what we look forward to doing over the course of the next you know 12 months or so. Should we, should we, Elliot,
1: should
2: we? A few people, I, I just had a quick look at the Q&A. There were also quite a lot of people asking questions about inflation and the inflationary
1: environment. I, I wonder if we should touch on that. Absolutely. That was the one I had queued up next. So let's, yeah. So is inflation impacting Naked Wine's operations and do you expect inflation to impact operations next year?
2: Yeah. I think this is this is an important one and it sits in kind of combination with, we talked earlier about the fact that philosophically, right? You know, we, we, we're not a company that looks to just, you know, Create the highest margin business for the sake of it, and we uh, our, our, our default is to get a share value back with with our consumers. Um, but the flip side of that is, you know, we do have an enormous amount of surplus available, and I think a different way of expressing that was that I'm confident the business has a degree of pricing power, and that actually means we're I think set up pretty well for an inflationary environment. I um, mean, there's also an extent where it's worth thinking about. You know, the different way in which different types of inflation will affect us and affect some of our competitors. So a lot of the stuff that we're seeing at the moment is, you know, inflation in terms of kind of labor rates, distribution and transport costs. And our direct consumer model, you know, being deeply involved in production and then selling direct to consumer physically touches our product less than a traditional three tier model. So actually, there's, you know, one way in which, you know, the business is quite well positioned in that kind of inflation. Um, But the second one, if you just think about the impact on shelf price of a given level of inflation that everyone will have to bear on things like glass bottles, which are becoming much more expensive, or international transport for imported wines. Um, Because our model is direct, you know, one margin, if everyone chooses to hold percentage margin, you're going to see much less movement on a price of wine at Naked. Than you are on a wine that's been brought into the U.S. It's been sold through into distribution, into retail, and then sold on to consumer. And I think you know, Wine Spectator have been talking and gathering impressions recently, and I think they've talked about you know expecting seeing kind of one to three dollars a bottle on wine under twenty bucks, and you know five dollars plus above that. You know, for you know, I think for our model, you know, we'd be able to comfortably maintain margin with the inflationary pressure we're seeing, with you know much lower um, price rises than that. So. From a game theory perspective, I think Naked's very well set up uh, for an inflationary environment. It's not anything anyone looks forward to, but I fully anticipate we'll come out the other side. I I don't expect to see any midterm margin erosion. and Probably what you'll see is, you know, when we next go and cut that Vivino chart, we'll actually be seeing a a broadening of the differentiation
1: and and the value we're able to offer to consumers. That's great. Thank you so much for addressing that one. John, do we have time for another
0: question? Or? Sure, sure. Take as much time as you, you guys want. I don't know about sure. that. Sure.
1: Yeah, so this is an interesting one. Are partnerships a possible growth engine in the future? What sort of partner would be ideal?
2: Yeah, so I think it's worth saying that you know, partnerships exist at lots of different levels, right? And one of the differentiating factors for Naked is that we actually you know built this business off a lot of B2B to C partnership activity so we partner with over 600 different um you know mainly retailing organizations in the uk the us and australia and and use that to put offers into third-party packages so you know you might have received a you know a solar tab or a nordstrom rack or something like that box with a naked wines voucher in. but i think the question here is getting to can we is there opportunity to deepen some of those partnerships right and how might we extend them um and I, i think There absolutely is that opportunity. Um, Maybe one that we're just putting into market at the moment. Um, I don't know how old anyone on the call is, so I don't know if anyone would be likely to get the AARP, American Association of Retired Persons, uh, magazine delivered to them. And I won't judge if you you admit to it in the comments. Um, But we're on page two this year um, of the December edition, uh, and that's the launch of a partnership we've created there where we've given an exclusive offer that we've made available to members Reservation. It's got over 40 million uh, Americans and members of a household that's got at least one person subscribed to AARP. And a ton of them are wine lovers, and they're looking for, you know, they're looking for that, you know, affordable luxury. You know, they they you know, typically spending, you know, 10 to 25 bucks a bottle, looking for a high quality product, high interest and affinity in supporting American producers. Um, and I think that's exactly the kind of partnership opportunity that makes a lot of sense, where you've got affinity and overlap in terms of audience. Uh, You've got an organization that I think helps boost and build your credibility of your brand. I think whenever you're trying to grow awareness and and strengthen perception of a brand that's new and innovative, I think partnership and someone that can help you in that dimension is really helpful. Um, So yeah, I I absolutely think there are opportunities for us to continue to build through that type of partnership. Um, and, And equally, you know, opportunities to find you know, other types of partners that share our values or or want collectively to help work on some of the things we're passionate about, you know, whether that also be looking at giving back to this um, or, you know, people who are interested in, you know, working with us and helping, you know, you know, you know, make the wine industry more sustainable, anything like that.
1: So, yeah, we
2: expect to see more of that type of activity.
1: Great. Well, Nick, I should have asked you as well. Do you have time for maybe one or two more or? Go on. I, I can I can I can do a couple more. Yeah, I think, the, you know, the, the I'll get
2: the I'll get the end signal when we hear kind of some of the kids running around. Uh, yep. <laughs> not, not yep. back,
1: but I seem to be doing OK at the moment, so we can do a couple more. Excellent. Um, so uh, why doesn't Naked Wines have more natural or organic wines? I've actually noticed more, but I'm curious to hear. You know, and maybe this lends to something about like different tastes in different age groups, different preferences, and maybe touch on your Wine Genie offering, because I think that was something I wanted to ask about that hadn't come up. So yeah, so let's start with natural and organic. Um, the first one's actually, we do produce a lot of
2: wine um, from organically farmed fruit. I don't know if the question's from someone in the US, but the, if, it, if it is, the US is a really interesting market for organic wine. And there's an extremely strict threshold applied to what you can label as an organic wine in the US. So to get a little bit geeky, it's not enough to just grow it from organically farmed fruit, um, which is what most people would associate with organics. You also then need to bottle it at a, a location that's certified organic and very few bottling lines are. And the criteria requires you to use no sulfur at all in the production of the wine. Um, And compared to say the organic criteria in say France, where a small amount of sulfur will be allowed and is normal. And what sulfur is it's essentially just a preservative to give stability to to the wine, to make sure you've got a, a product that's going to behave as a consumer would expect over its normal lifetime. And that's why we don't tend to bottle much under a pure organic label in the US. Ultimately, we don't think it's really in the consumer's best interests. Um, you tend to get far too much kind of bottle to bottle um, variation and you haven't got a product that you can guarantee with confidence is going to stay stable if because people want to enjoy it over the course of one, two years. Um, So we have lots of, lots of organic fruit, but it doesn't all turn up an organically labeled wine. Um, I think the natural wine question is another interesting one. And, you know, the natural wine movement is, you know, stylistically very similar. Um, I, I think Yes, there's probably an opportunity for us to have a couple more producers on the platform that really embrace that movement. Um, But again, it's a movement sometimes that's more about making wines to stand out or make an impression for their own sake. Um, They're very popular um, with the kind of East and West Coast sommelier community. Um, When you look at the consumer data and you, you, you have people sample them, it's not a style of wine that as many wine drinkers genuinely love um and we ultimately you know always are a company that believe about creating a great product that is going to be enjoyed and so that you know that's always going to be a filter that, that, that we apply to the range so it's probably unlikely to become our heartland anytime soon um you're going to
1: ask me about wine genie give, 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 give me give me a question <laughs> yeah so i mean it's two parts right you have this in increasingly uh, accelerating growth of your data asset. You have really interesting data. You have a lot of reviews from your community and you're able to put together something with that. And that's part one. Part two is, you know, there's a wheelhouse customer that you've historically been associated with. And, you know, I think it's um, different than what the Wine Genie customer base would be. So talk about, you know, how you're taking advantage of this data asset and how it gives you opportunities to kind of target a different kind of customer than is historically associated with Naked Wines. Yeah, absolutely. So
2: you're you're right, Elliot. I mean, one of the opportunities we have in the time we've been doing business, I think we've collected somewhere in the region, 28, 29 million, you know, explicit customer ratings. We have a far, far data set of implicit behavior that helps us understand, you know, the likelihood of different types of customers like other wines given a set of purchase behavior and history and interactions. And that's the foundation, the IP, the assets that we've used to help create Wine Genius as a product, which effectively use it. algorithmic recommendation to suggest to you next wines, given a broad set of parameters that you're in control of. Think of it, you slide the dials and then we work out exactly what wine you get, you know, in the time horizon you've asked for. In terms of where that fits into our overall business and, and naked's opportunity, I think, and you know, excuse the the big generalization but you know the data bears out in general but there's a big split in terms of wine consumption preference um, along the dimension of age and by and large you know a lot of consumers who are you know know, a bit older than me really love to have control Uh, a lot of people will tell us in focus groups i know the kind of things i like Um, i don't want to be surprised i like to make my own choices And we consciously built a wine club that was very different, you know, that meant you could be in charge of when you bought what you bought and pick every bottle. And that's traditionally been the heartland of Naked. About 70% of our sales to members come with customers picking every single bottle. By contrast, I think there's a younger generation who have in lots of elements of their consumption an expectation that businesses are going to help them understand what they should be consuming. You know, whether that's someone who's grown up discovering new artists by listening to Spotify, um, you know, or, or, you know, is used to the idea of, you know, someone kind of selecting them new fashion brands and things to try and sending them to them. And really, we created Wine Genius with that type of customer in mind. Someone who said, OK, I, I don't know that much about wine, but I, I love what you're doing. I, I like the idea of discovering more. You've got a bunch of the world's best winemakers. You know, let's go. You know, t- tell me what I should be trying. And I think... For me, one of the most exciting things is that means we've got an opportunity. Um, You know, those two things can coexist really well. You know, they're not in any way in contrast, in competition with each other. As long as we can work out which customer to put which proposition in front of, I think we can use that to really improve our overall cohort economics. Because, you know, the reality today, and we disclose, you talk about our disclosure, you're very kind about our disclosure at the beginning. We disclose a key performance metric, which we call payback. It's the ratio of five-year lifetime value to the cost of acquisition um, for any given cohort. Um, but the reality within that, if you, if you sub-segment that, you know, we're making higher returns than the overall average from you know, customers sort of age 40 and up. Customers age you know, in their late 20s, early 30s, you know, we're making lower returns. And if we can find a proposition that better meets those differentiated needs you know, and raises that up, you're going to see us drive overall cohort returns, and it's going to give us the ability to reinvest and drive faster growth in the business. So, I think that's I think it's a really exciting opportunity. It's been great to see the you know the first year of live testing of that product go really well, and gives me a lot of confidence that we can scale that up and use it to drive improved
1: returns over the over the next couple of years. Okay, well, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I think that's a good note to uh, call it a wrap on now. Um, really appreciate you know you haven 't done this with with us um I think you you know maybe the people out there could see why i 've enjoyed our conversation so much. I could probably ask you a million more questions um and you know you give uh you know just great answers very helpful in understanding this and big thanks to John as well for uh putting this event together and and having us out here so um, really appreciate it, and look forward to hearing more from other people uh, about Naked Wines and anything else. Yeah, right. yeah, John Elliot, thank you very much for having me, and and thank you everyone for kind of listening and and,
2: and submitting questions, and been a pleasure.
0: Thanks, Elliot, and Nick, uh, it was terrific. Thank you so much. Take care, everybody. Take care.